came across with an interesting story some time ago, and it just kind of sparked my interest as I was reading an article, and the article was called, Ruby Was a Knucklehead. Now, if you know somebody named Ruby, don't go out and calling him a knucklehead. You might know somebody that's a knucklehead at the moment. But Ruby was a knucklehead. It's really a story about a dog, a dog that's been put in the animal shelter, not once, but five different occasions. In fact, five families have adopted Ruby, and they found out Ruby was a dog that was just this wild animal that would bite its leash, would run everywhere, and go to every place. It's uncontrollable. And so they finally got fed up, and they'll return Ruby back to the animal shelter. She was adopted multiple times there in the Rhode Island uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animal Shelter by five families until Officer O'Neill rescued her from the shelter and invested time and enrolled Ruby into a canine training course where she reportedly graduated at the top of her class. Amazing story, because eventually Ruby went on to be this canine dog for the Rhode Island State Police. She, she was this special dog that assisted in several search and rescue missions. So this story is a real story, but October 2015, Officer O'Neill and this dog named Ruby found a teenager boy who had fallen into a ravine and remained unconscious. So Ruby's story and the extraordinary recovery skills that she has made national headlines and captured the hearts of the Americans. Because of this, this dog, Ruby, became the canine honorary dog of the year in 2018 by, awarded by the American Humane Society. She became this special dog to the point that they even made a film about Ruby and it's called it Rescued by Ruby. Man, when I read this story, I was like, man, I was, that was inspiring because I like animals. I like dogs. I mean, that was an amazing story, and the more I thought about that, and the more I started to think about that, I'm glad that stories like those with animals are inspiring, but there's more inspiring stories that we can hear about how people have been rescued from their bondage of sin, from the way of life that they used to be in, and God had rescued them, not just in places of sin, but in homes that were broken, in places that they were working at, and they were miserable in their life, and there was a God that was in the business of restoring and res rescuing people that have been abandoned by this world, that have been put aside, and that have given up on them. If you want a story of a wonderful rescue team. It was God had used local churches around the world to rescue the broken and lost people everywhere. This amazing story of God's redemption is evident, in fact, in the book of Isaiah. If you ever take the time to study the book of Isaiah, there's three major themes that I would say that you can find in the book of Isaiah. The first major theme would be this, the infidelity of God's people. There were a group of people that forsaken, forsaken their God and abandoned their God and have forgotten their maker. It's a sad, sad story and how God had a special heart for this group of people, but they have forsaken and became unfaithful to their God. 
The second thing that you'll see in the book of Isaiah as you read it from the book of chapter 1, all that to the end of the chapters, is this. God consistently loved this rebellious people. I mean, you see this in the book of Isaiah. Over and over again, you see God loved this rebellious people. I mean, that humbled my heart when I started to read this. Over and over again, you see how God kept them moving through the lives of the nation of Israel and trying to return them back to him. And the third thing that you see is that God's chastisement about his people that rebelled against him. To bring them back and to restore them. In fact, you see this in the beautiful story of the, the life of Hosea and his wife, Gomer. The domestic life of Hosea and Gomer. If you have a Bible, just follow some of these verses that we're going to look at tonight. Hosea chapter 1, the Bible says this in verse number 2. The beginning of the, the, beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and the children of whoredoms, for the land had committed great whoredoms departing from the Lord. What a sad testimony. They have forsaken their Lord. Again, you see this infidelity of the people of God. The second thing you see here is that in chapter 2, Hosea's life and Hosea's action to his wife, he never forsook her. There was a time that he did want to, but he kept on going back to her. By the time you get to chapter 2, if you just take the time to read it and think about the scriptures, really, Hosea was knocking in the door of where Gomer was prostituting. Just look at it real quick. Chapter 2. Look what it says in verse number 8. For she did not know, Gomer didn't know that I gave her corn and wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Can you imagine that picture? Here's Hosea knocking the door, says, this is for my wife. This oil, this gold, this uh, merchants, this, this provision for my wife, and he would give it to the lovers of Gomer. And they would take it and offer it to Baal. It's a sad testimony of Gomer. By the time you get to chapter 3, Hosea was purchasing his wife from the slave market. Look what it says in chapter 1, chapter 3, verse number 1. Then said the Lord unto me, Go, yet love a woman, beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver, for a homer of barley, and a half homer of barley. They say during the, those days, the price of a slave would have been 20 pieces of silver. But because she had lived this life, and she'd been used up by the world, finally she's in the slave market being sold. Now can just imagine Hosea standing there in the marketplace saying, I'll buy my wife. I have 10 pieces of silver. And some other man would say, I have 11 pieces of silver. And then Hosea would say, no, 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 I got 12. And another man would say, no, I got 13 pieces of silver. 
And he would look at his change. He said, no, I got 15 pieces to serve. And I got some barley here. And I got another half of barley here. That's all I have. And he was like, are anybody else going to buy her? Sold to the man over there. What's your name? Hosea is my name. Gomer is my wife. That's what's unfolding in chapter 3. And then you see this man, Hosea, was really, there was a bigger picture that we got to see beside the domestic home of Hosea was this. The unfailing love of God towards this people called Israel. In fact, this is the northern kingdom, and it also addresses the southern kingdom, Judah, as well. This is God's picture and portrait is of unfailing love to the nation of Israel. Now, this is exciting, because I like those first three chapters, Pastor. I love those first three chapters, because it gives me a heart of compassion. It just kind of opens up God's heart to let me see how God's heart is beating for his people. But by the time we get to chapter 4... All the way and really to chapter 10, it kind of changes a little bit because chapter 4 to chapter 10, when you start to read it, it's kind of like judgment after judgment after judgment. Chastisement, judgment, because they rebelled against God. Just look at some of these passages, would you? Hosea chapter 4, verse number 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge. Look what it says. I will also reject thee. Wow. When I read that, I said, man, God is going to reject them. Chapter 5. Look what it says. Chapter 5, verse number 14. For I will be unto Ephraim. Now you understand Ephraim was the bigger tribe of the northern kingdom. So when you see Ephraim in the book of Isaiah, it usually represents the whole northern kingdom, Israel. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. Boy, that doesn't sound too promising anymore. Chapter 6, look what it says. Chapter 6, verse number 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. That's the goodness of the nation of Israel to God. That's how they treated God. It's just there for a moment. Get up in the morning, some of you to get up early in the morning, you might see the dew in the grass, and by noontime, it's completely gone. It's not there anymore. Verse number 5 of chapter 6. Therefore, I have used them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Thy judgment are the light that goes forth. God has sent prophets after prophets after prophets to the northern kingdom. In fact, there was 19 kings in the northern kingdom, and all those 19 kings were identified as this, evil. Except for one of them, the man by the name of Jehu, Jehu was identified as a man that didn't have a heart for God. And each one of these kings just simply followed the way of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the sin of Jeroboam, they did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord because they followed the sin of Jeroboam. All 19 kings, they were identified as evil, and Jehu, though he executed the word of the Lord, he had no heart to follow God. 
All 19 kings. This is over 200 years. And God had been dealing with them. And finally, chapter 4 to chapter 10, we see God's judgment is being laid out. Chapter 7, look what it says. Verse 11. The Bible says this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They didn't have a heart for God. A silly dove is like this dove that doesn't know where to come back. You just let it loose and it'll just go everywhere. And the Bible says that they call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. In fact, they made allegiance with Egypt, with the king Saul. And they made allegiance to Assyria. They just wanted to get their security. Instead of trusting God, that God was the one that provided for them, that God brought them out of Egypt, and that God established them as a nation, and that God has given them what is called the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, and in Genesis 15, that God walked in the midst of this covenant sacrifice. By the way, he walked there by himself. Abraham never walked into the middle of that covenant. It was God that was going to keep that covenant to Abraham. And his children are after him. And here the Bible says this. They go to Egypt and they go to Assyria. The Bible says in verse number 12. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I'll bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation had heard. Eventually God's going to chastise them and deal with them. Again, when you read these verses from chapter 4 and on. It's like the message of doom is just about to happen to the nation of Israel. Chapter 8. Here's a sad commentary of the nation of Israel. Look what it says, verse 14. For Israel has forgotten its maker and builded temples. And Judah, the southern kingdom, had multiplied fenced cities Look what God said. But I will send a fire upon his cities, and he shall devour the palaces thereof. We understand that the northern kingdom of Syria was going to eventually be used by God to be the chastisement to the nation of Israel, the rod of man, as the Bible says. Then eventually the southern kingdom will still exist for some time, and Babylon will eventually take the southern kingdom. And God is going to use these kingdoms to chastise them. Chapter 9, look what it says in verse 17. My God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him, and they shall be wanderers amongst the nations. Again, over and over again, you see from chapter 4 to chapter 9, as we have read some of those verses, very clearly that God's judgment is upon this nation, the northern kingdom specifically, concerning Assyria. By the time you get to chapter 10, the last few verses, verse 14, he says here, Therefore shall a tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled. A shaman or shamanizer spoiled Betarbel in the day of battle. The mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In the morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. The last king of Israel will be Hoshea. And eventually, 
he'll be cut off. This is the prophecy of Hosea to a nation that have forgotten their maker. Now let's stop here for a moment. If you think about this verse, boy, this is the doom message. I mean, Pastor, when I was reading this and I preached through this whole book of Hosea, after chapter 3, by the time I get to chapter 4 and chapter 10, I was kind of feeling like, man, this is a message of doom. Every Sunday morning, this is what I'm preaching about in church. I don't know if somebody else is going to come back next Sunday if I'm going to keep on preaching like this. And I'm supposed to give hope and everything else. You know, inspire people to serve and let them find some kind of hope when they come to the house of the Lord. And so as I was reading these things, man, it's just started to become a heavy message of judgment of God. And if you're not careful, if you just take some of these few verses, you're going to think about the Old Testament God is not a loving God. You ever heard that before? You know, the God of the Old Testament doesn't love people. I mean, I heard that sometimes here and there when I would knock on doors. He said, you know, that God of the Old Testament is just judgment and wrath and all these kind of things. Until I read chapter 11. Until I read chapter 11. If you have a Bible, just look at this verse. Because this was the verse that just stirred my heart. And I saw something that almost like God opened up his heart to let me see the heartbeat of God. That God is not a God of judgment. Though there's consequences for man's sin. But God was moving and being motivated by more than just judging his people. The chastisement that was coming upon the nation officials because there was a motive behind this whole thing. And look what he said in chapter 9, chapter 11, verse number Eight. Look at these words. I highlighted and I even underlined it in my Bible. It says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How can I give up Ephraim? You understand what he's saying? In spite of what you have done to me, and in spite of you who have rejected me, in spite of you who have forgotten your maker, in spite of you have gone to other gods, and in spite of you have taken the wealth of this world and made it your God. And in fact, when Jeroboam made two uh, golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan, the Bible called it, they were the furrows, meaning they, they plowed to worshiping that God. And every king that came along in the northern kingdom forsook God, and they led him to this idolatrous practice, but in spite of all those things that you have done, in spite of you rejecting me, in spite of you making your other gods here, and I have brought you out of Egypt, here's something that I couldn't do. I can't give you up. I can't quit on you. And I can't stop loving you. And I can't give you up as a nation of Israel. What a beautiful verse. Look what he says in verse number 8. How shall I give thee up Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? And how shall I set thee as Seboim? When I read those words, I, I didn't know what Adma was. And I didn't know what Seboim was. Good old strong concordance, you know. Get your old strong concordance, you find out where they are. So I found them in the Bible where they are. So when I got to the Bible, when I found out where they were at, they were some little cities around Sodom and Gomorrah. The plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is Genesis chapter 10, verse number 19, Genesis 14, verse number 2. You don't need to turn there, but just make a note of that in the side of your Bible. 
So when you read these little cities around Sodom and Gomorrah, and then you read Genesis 19:29, here's what it says. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham, sent out Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. So these little cities around Sodom and Gomorrah, according to the Bible, God destroyed them. So as I looked at my strong concordance, I got up to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and I found the words there in verse number 23. Let me read it to you. And that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that is not sown nor buried nor any grass growed therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, and Seboim. There's the words. And the Lord overthrew his anger and his wrath. So now I started to think about these verses. God said, you know, I'm not going to give you up. How can I give up Ephraim? How can I, the Bible said this, deliver Israel? How can I destroy Israel? Why? I'm not going to make them like Adma. How shall I make thee and set thee like Seboim? He's saying this, hey, I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and all the plains of the cities around there. And Adma and Seboim were two cities that were destroyed. But I can't treat God's people that way. There was something that was compelling God's heart. And the heartbeat of God was looking at the people and saying, wait a minute, I can't give you you up. I can't quit in you. There's something about you that I, uh, that's motivating me to compel myself to not deliver you and destroy you. Verse number eight, it continues. Mine heart is turned within me. I don't know about you. God's heart is turning within him. He's yearning for his people. His heart is broken. But there's something about his people that's motivating God not to destroy them and not to give up on them. His heart is turning within me, he said. My repentings are kindled together. When I saw these verses, my mind was blown away that God didn't give up on the rebellious people. Then I asked myself, why? Why did God give up on these people? Then I started to read the portion of the scriptures again. Then I started to mark my Bibles, and I came in verse number one, and here's the reason why. Just follow along with it. When Israel was a child, then I loved him. That's the reason why. When Israel was a child, when Israel was a little child, And how God had been so gracious to the nation of Israel. And there God called Abraham out of the Chaldees. And God started to formulate a group of people. And there he had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had uh, two children. One was hairy, one was smooth. They were rivalries. One had complete polar opposite with one another. One liked to be in the tent, the other one liked to go hunting. And there God kept a covenant with Abraham. And there as a child, he said, I love them. But I want you to see the transition of this in verse number one. When Israel was a child, then I loved them and called them and called my son out of Egypt. That's not a little child anymore. That's a son. And there he loved him as a child. And he continues as a son. And I think about what took place in all those years of the life of the nation of Israel. As God made a a group of people, there God had 
Isaac had 12 children. Jacob, you mean Israel, had 12 children. You remember one of them was sold? I understand some of you have siblings. You want to sell your siblings here and there. I have a brother. Sometimes I thought about selling my brother. Never took action upon it. But these guys actually did take action. In fact, they wanted to kill him. And they tried to kill Joseph, but Reuben said, no, no, we shouldn't kill him. And there, in spite of their behavior, in spite of who they were, God didn't give up on these people. You, you, you understand what happened right after that? They were in bondage. They went to the nation of uh, Egypt, took over them. And there, they were in bondage, and they were, they were living in that land for the next 400 years. But God... Never forgot about them. That after 400 years, God delivered them. They were even doubting that God would deliver them out of the hand of Moses. And God sent his ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And there God brought them out. And when they came out, they went to a place and they started to complain. And they started to complain about Moses being up there in the mountains. And there they complained and they said, you know, back home in Egypt, the garlic's... We had garlics, we had leeks, we had fishes. Didn't you bring us out here to die in the wilderness because there was no cemeteries back home? They were murmuring, they were murmuring against the man of God. But in spite of all those things, God didn't give up on loving them. It continues. You read the book of Judges. It's not even a cycle, it's a downward spiral of wickedness. By the time you get to chapter 19, I read it last night, chapter 19, 20 and 21. Boy, they were just in a big mess. A Levite had a concubine. She went off for about four months and eventually got her back. And there, the Levite and the, the, the concubine were traveling to Gibeah. They get to Gibeah, and there, as they were in Gibeah, there was no housing. An old man takes the men, and then the man of Benjamin... The men that were sodomites knocked into the door and said, we want the man from in your house. And the Bible said the old man tried to offer his daughter and the concubine. The Levite, that's supposed to be the model, that's supposed to be a spiritual leader, gave his concubine to this man in Sodom. And the Bible said they knew her. Now that was sitting across the table and talking to one another. They did some horrible things to her. And but as when morning came, she was barely alive, and there in the porch of that man, she was dead, and the Levite walks out. And there he takes this woman, chops her up, and fedex her to the twelve tribes. And they almost annihilated Benjamin, but God spared him. God spared Benjamin. That's the condition of the nation of Israel. And the Bible said this, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called him my son out of Egypt. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed him to Balaam and burned incense to graven images. This is how they responded to God. As God sent prophets and God reminded them about what's taking place in their life, they respond back to God by going back to Balaam and worshiping the false god. Verse number three. I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. They knew not that I healed them. As this 
picture of the love of the father to a child and the love of the father to a son. You can see how a father just teaches his child. And there, this nation of Israel was being guided by their heavenly father. And the Bible says this, he even took them by their arms. I could imagine a child falling and tripping. And then he picks them back up and takes them by their arms. Verse number three, but they knew not that I healed them. A physician, God was a healer to them. Verse four, I love this. I drew them with the cords of a man, with bands of love. The Bible is so descriptive. It has so much picturesque words. And here God describes how he's drawing this, this nation that rebelled against him. And the Bible says this. It was in the, with the cords of an animal. It's not like a dog leash. He tried to restrain, tried to control them. No, but it was, a, it was a bands of love. It showed gentleness and kindness to keep them close to him. The Bible speaks of these cords, these bands of love. Then the transition of a new picture comes in. In verse number four, I drew them with the cords of a man with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke of their jaws. And I laid meat unto them. This picture of an animal, maybe an animal that labored all day, worked all day. It takes off the yoke and, and, and that it was a burden to the animal. And then at the end of the night in the stall, the, the man that takes care of the animal starts to feed and provides for him. He's, he's describing how he's taking care of the nation of Israel. In spite of who they are, God has not given up on this people because of this motivation of love that he has for this people. Verse 5, he shall not return unto the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refused to return, even though they were bestowed upon much love by God. They still go back to the Assyrians. It's such an unfortunate commentary. It's such an unfortunate account of the nation of Israel. Verse number 9, slide down there. I will not execute... I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I don't know about you. Have you ever thought about how strong our God is? I mean, we don't understand in Genesis chapter 1, he spoke the world into existence. Somebody was saying, you're one of those that believe in a seven-day creation. No, I don't believe in a seven-day creation. I believe God created everything in six days, and the seventh day, he rested. God spoke everything into existence. But have you ever seen the anger of God or the judgment of God? Think about the flood. Eight people were left. Think about the 185,000 Assyrians that one angel took out. That's how powerful our God is. Think about all the other things that God has done by the word of his mouth. God is a very powerful God. And the Bible said this, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger into the nation of Israel. So we see here something that's amazing. And we're starting to see something evolve in the passages of the scripture that we can identify as one main thought. It was simply this. God doesn't quit in loving people. I am so glad, Pastor, that God doesn't quit on loving me. I don't know how many times I've quit on loving people. 
I, I regret it at times. I think about some people, man, I want to love him more. But I don't, man, they just get into the flesh. But we have a God tonight, my friend, I want to remind you, he has not quit on loving you and me in spite of who we are and what we have done. And my friend, let me say this tonight. Sometimes you think, if I can do this, if I could perform like this, if I could be a better person, God will love me more. No, God loves me for who I am, a sinner. But God committed his love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love John 3, 16. Many of you could quote it tonight. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Our performance will not earn God's love to us. He already loved you and me. Isn't it true tonight? The reason why we're still saved tonight is because of the love of Christ. Amen to that. Eternal security is not based upon how good I can keep it. No, we're not Arminius. No, my friend, we're biblicists. We're the Bible believers. The Bible says this, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? I said, it's written for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ, through him that love us. For I'm persuaded. We're persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friend, tonight, if you're struggling about eternal security, tonight if you're struggling, if God loves you, my friend, Jesus proved it on the cross of Calvary. Jesus said, I love you on the blood of the cross of Calvary. Jesus laid his life for you and for me. Greater love had no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ, my friend, loves you and me tonight. And he has not given up on us and he will never give up on us because God is not a quitter of loving people because of this attribute that God is love because of who God is in our life and because the beneficiary of God's love for us tonight unlovable people that God loves we ought to be emulating and magnifying and living out the love of God in our life because why when the love of God was shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit of God, then we could live and manifest the same kind of love that God has showed to us, to the busket that's unlovable, to that person that gets on your nerves, to the wife that maybe is not somebody that is easy to love, or to the husband that's always cranky and mean. My friend, you could bestow that kind of love because the Holy Spirit of God is living in you. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Wow, that's the first fruit of the Spirit. The Bible said 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Sometimes I get a crack at that verse because sometimes they use that for a wedding verse. Then I think about the context of that. Man, this is a divided church during the, the book of 1 Corinthians. There's schisms. I'm from Paul. I'm from Apollos. I'm from Cephas. And the spiritual said, I'm from Christ. Paul said, do I have the tongues of man and of angels and have not charity? I'm becoming a sounding brass or a stickling cymbal. Simple. They'll give my body to the poor. They'll be so much goods and have not charity. I'm nothing. 
I could be the greatest preacher in the world, but I don't preach out of love. And I don't speak the truth in love. It's just vain. I could be here every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I could be riding the bus all morning and all night and, and doing all these things, but without love. It's just a waste. But if this is our God that doesn't quit on loving us, then God's people should never quit on loving one another and loving their God. I want to encourage you to love the New Testament church. Because why? Because God loved the church and he gave himself for it. I don't know about you, I love the New Testament church. I don't call it my church, it's the Lord's church, really. And I understand some, some people use it as our church. But really, at the end of the day, the ownership of the church is Jesus Christ. Amen. He loves the church and gave himself for it. He's the one that bought it. He's the one that paid for it. We better be careful on how we treat the church. By the way, there's no church that's perfect. I remember having an anniversary of our church, that, that church we planted in, in Delano. Uh, my pastor, Pastor Larry Barrow, went there and preached the, um, that first anniversary service. If you're looking for church, be careful. If you find a perfect church, don't join it. It won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> I thought about that. I said, yeah, right. There's no perfect church. God wasn't looking for perfect people. He loved the church already. Amen. See, we often think that, you know, we have to be perfect to be loved by God. My friend, we don't need to think like that anymore. Behold what manner of love this is that we even shall be called the sons of God. The bestowing of the Father's love upon us because Jesus Christ himself paid for your sin and my sin. You know, the nation of Israel wasn't loved because they were good people. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse number 7 and 8 says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor chose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. And here's his reason. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which has sworn unto your fathers, the Lord had brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh. It is easy to take for granted the love of God in our life. Oftentimes I fail, I fail to realize that, man, God loves me so much. And he hasn't given up on me. I thank God for that. As I read this passage, I think about how God loved me. Then I go back to Christ. We are reminded of Jesus' unfailing love for people. There in the cross of Calvary, I think about Jesus Christ. When he said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. What kind of love is that? That's the love of God. That is the love of our Lord. I want to challenge you tonight. If God has not given up on loving you, unlovable people, God has not given up on on loving me, we have to continue to love God and one another. Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Love God and love people. I wonder how the world 
and everybody else are, is going to know that we're disciples of Jesus. I wonder, is it because we wear a suit? I'm all for standards. We should have good standards for the Lord. We should do things in excellence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I shine my shoes, put on a nice tie, press my clothes. I love my King James Bible. It's the only Bible that I ever owned when I got saved. I read it so often every year. I try to memorize verses out of the King James Bible. Boy, I love it. I enjoy reading it. Tonight, before I go to bed, I'll read a few chapters of the Bible. Well, I love memorizing the scriptures here. I love studying the Bible. I enjoy it. But how's people going to know that we're disciples of Jesus? Simple. How you love one another. In fact, he says this, a new commandment I give unto you. Then I thought about a new commandment. You love one another as I have loved you. Jesus Christ won the cross of Calvary for you and for me. And that's the kind of love he expects to have with one another. The love of God. As I was thinking about this sermon, oftentimes I try to come up with uh, illustrations here to just help enforce the idea of the, the message. Then I thought about the story out of Luke chapter 15. If you could just go there and we'll wrap it up with this portion of the scripture. Luke chapter 15. I love this story. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus was being accused by, was sitting with and eating with sinners and publicans. Here in Luke chapter 15, he tells of a story, he calls it a parable about a wayward son. We call it the story of the prodigal son. And so the prodigal son said, Father, I want all the inheritance. I want it now. Well, give it to me. All the things that you're going to prepare and give it to me down the road, I want it right now. And the Bible says this. He takes this uh, inheritance that he's going to he receive from his father, and he goes away in a far country. And he's gone for some time. And the Bible talks about how he lived in such a way that didn't please his father. And he lived in such a way that it was a disgrace. And then he eventually ran out of money, and he ran out of the inheritance, and he ended up doing things he wasn't supposed to be doing. And the Bible says this in verse number 18. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He arose came to his father. I want you to see this because this is amazing. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. A great way off from far away. That means his father was looking out for his son. And from far away, he saw the silhouette of his son. He says, I know that silhouette. That is my son. And the father, look what it says, and saw him and had compassion 
And the father ran. It was the father that ran to his son. And his father's heart, there was yearning for his son to come back. And his father's heart was still beating with this love that he has for his son, for his son to come back to him. And there with compassion and with a heart of love, he ran to his son. He says, come on, son, come back home. Go get the fatty calf. Go get my ring. And let's celebrate because my son was dead. And now he's back home and he's alive forevermore. That is the love of God that's been waiting for his children to come back. And my friend, if you feel like you're wayward and you're out there so far away from God, we have a God that's waiting for you. And his love has not quit on you. And his love will never fail. God still loves unlovable people, and he will never stop loving unlovable people. My friend, tonight is an opportunity for us to rekindle our love for God again. As we see from the scriptures, that God's love is always rekindled for you and me. Ken, our God is not a quitter in loving you and me. My Lord, thank you.